Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of No Rain Date, the podcast of Sock and Source. I'm Josh Popachak, the publisher of Sock and Source and your host for No Rain Date. And I'm happy to have you back with us this week. Here are the headlines we've been talking about for the week ending October 16th, 2020. Trick or Treat is just a couple weeks away now and with coronavirus cases on the increase in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. It's certainly a hot topic, more so than normally. We have some news about trick-or-treat in the communities we cover. In Fountain Hill Borough, Borough Council decided earlier this month that the police department will host a trick-or-treat drive-through for borough families at the police department. This will be on Friday, October 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. And that's the time when the traditional trick-or-treat is normally held. Borough council members agreed that there's no real way for them to prevent people from going door-to-door trick-or-treating if that's something they want to do, but they are encouraging families to participate in the drive-through at the police department since it will help with distancing and that's obviously something that is encouraged in all public settings right now. I'm sure people will be decorating their family vehicles in the spirit of Halloween and the police department is seeking donations of candy to help make the event a big success. You can drop those off at the police department, which is at 941 Long Street in Fountain Hill Borough. Of course, because of COVID-19, the Fountain Hill Fire Department's traditional haunted firehouse is canceled for this year, sadly, but it's for the safety of the community and the safety of our volunteer firefighters. Fire Chief Derek Richmond updated Borough Council on the fire department and mentioned that the haunted firehouse would not be held this year at the meeting on October 5th. They are, however, planning to host their traditional Christmas tree fundraiser closer to the holidays, and we will have information about that once the details are finalized. Another big story out of Fountain Hill this week is changes to garbage pickup that are going to affect residents in 2021. Borough Council had two bids for a new three-year garbage and recycling contract. Both would have resulted in price increases regardless of the option that they went with, which was either to continue with twice-a-week pickup or switch to once-a-week garbage pickup. Ultimately, council voted five to two in favor of switching to once a week garbage pickup. So residents will essentially be paying a little bit more for fewer pickups. That's partly a sign of the times. Garbage hauling fees are increasing across the board. So this is something other municipalities will likely be struggling with as they work on their budgets for 2021. However, Fountain Hill has a tighter budget than many other smaller municipalities in the area, and and that certainly was also a factor in the decision. Recycling pickup will remain every other week, so that will be unchanged next year if you live in Fountain Hill. The state police at Dublin announced Thursday that they are investigating a graffiti incident that occurred in Nakamixon Township, Bucks County. This happened in the 100 block of Marienstein Road, which is a rural road not far from Route 611 and the village of Revere. Police said that they were called to the roadway for a report of a yellow swastika spray painted on the road. And apparently that was spray painted over an earlier piece of graffiti that said Trump 2020. And 
there was a, another reference to the election spray painted on the southbound lanes of uh, southbound lane rather of Marion Stein Road, which said four more years. So police canvassed the neighborhood. They said they did not locate any residents that have that particular area within view of their homes, at least not right now with leaves on the trees still. So they did not find any witnesses to who may have created the graffiti. But interestingly, this happened very close to a park in the township, which was vandalized last month in September. This is Veterans Park, and somebody spray-painted the word dumb on various objects in the park, and that remains unsolved as well. So it's possible there is a uh, very determined graffiti artist in that area who um, will hopefully be apprehended if people are using their surveillance and reporting things to the police. With the election coming up November 3rd, voting has been taking center stage. Many people are voting by mail or by dropping off their mail ballots at various drop boxes. Northampton County has five drop boxes set up throughout the county, and we have a story about that on Sock and Source, which was published back at the end of September, and you'll find information about where those drop boxes are located as well as their hours of operation in the article. Lehigh County is in the process of approving four different drop boxes, which will be located throughout the county. As of earlier this week, you could drop off your mail-in or absentee ballot at the Lehigh County Government Center building, which is in downtown Allentown, 17 South 7th Street. You don't even have to go in the building. There is a slot next to the entrance to the building where you simply deposit your sealed ballot. And voters are being reminded that the ballot, once completed, must be placed in a sealed secrecy envelope, which comes with it in the mail. Then the sealed secrecy envelope is sealed inside a second envelope, which the voter signs and dates. Unfortunately, the way the law is written, or fortunately, if the ballot is not inside both envelopes, it will not be counted. So it's very important that if you're voting this way and and you haven't done it before, which is most people, you read all the instructions carefully because you don't want to have your vote thrown out. Most Lehigh County residents should have their ballot by now. The county said all the ballots were mailed by October 6th. If you haven't received your ballot by early next week, you should contact the county. And we have an article about how to do that, as well as information about what to do if you requested a mail-in ballot but now want to vote in person. Some people are saying they want to do that. You must bring your ballot with you to the polling place to have it destroyed by the judge of elections. Otherwise, you will have to use a provisional ballot when you vote on election day. So that obviously isn't ideal. There's lots to think about with this election, and certainly we hope you will participate. Voting is a right that we should not take for granted. We just have to take a few extra moments to think about how we're voting this year and make sure we're following all the proper protocols and, of course, being safe above all else. Voting by mail was the subject of a news story that was filmed in Hellertown earlier this month by a Japanese television station, NHK, which stands for Japan Broadcasting Corporation, visited the borough and filmed several scenes, one in which a voter, uh, Bill Brune, who is a local Democratic activist, uh, professor, former borough council candidate, was filmed completing his ballot and then dropping it in a mailbox outside the Hellertown post office. There were also images of uh, Democratic Party organizers canvassing a neighborhood, handing out literature about voting by mail to residents. 
this was about a two-minute segment, and it was filmed by a Japanese television crew based in New York City. Sockensor spoke to the producer of the segment, who was kind enough to share some information about it with our readers and about the interest in this year's election in Japan, of course, in voting by mail, which is something that they don't do over there. The voting process is is quite different in Japan. So hopefully that was informative for the Japanese viewers who got a glimpse of, of Hellertown. And the crew apparently was very charmed by the community, according to Bill Brune, who said they thought of it as a typical small town America and certainly that's how many of us see it so that was that was interesting also related to uh, coronavirus was the announcement this week that free school lunches and breakfasts are being extended for all students through the end of this school year so that's through June 30th 2021 That's great news for everybody, but especially if you're a family that's dealing with difficult financial circumstances because of the coronavirus pandemic. Many people are still laid off or furloughed, and it's one less thing to have to worry about how you're going to pay for your child's school lunches. So we have that story on Sock and Source. Finally, COVID cases, as we mentioned earlier, are on the rise, and so are hospitalization rates and ventilator rates, at least statewide, are going up. Secretary of Health for Pennsylvania, Dr. Rachel Levine, said earlier this week that this appears to be the start of a second wave of the pandemic. However, the state is much better prepared than it was in the spring. More is known about the virus and more safety Protocols are in place. Of course, mask wearing continues and is very widespread, although not universal. But masks are required in public places where a distance of six feet cannot be maintained at all times, as well as in all businesses. For the most part, people are respecting others and helping to keep themselves healthy by following that order. We will continue to report on the coronavirus pandemic and its impacts on our communities, and those do not appear to be lessening anytime soon. So we have the numbers that we follow every day, and we hope you will continue to follow them with us. That's our news roundup for this week, and now we have an interview that's going to raise your hair a little bit, uh, maybe a lot with Ellen Flynn, who is a historian of haunted places in the Lehigh Valley, and we think you'll find her stories fascinating and chilling. Hey, sports fans, it's crunch time. Reef here to give you a lowdown on this week's Saucon Valley Panther football scrum against the Palmerton Blue Bombers. Last year, the Panthers overcame a sluggish start to down the Bombers 35-14. Oddly, Friday is going to be Saucon Valley's homecoming, but due to social distancing restrictions, there won't be a whole lot going on. So, once again, Panther fans can catch the game live stream thanks to Saucon Valley Athletics and Saucon Source. The Blue Bombers are feast or famine, it seems. Week one, the Bombers hammered Catasauqua 56-14. That's a lot of points. Week two, the recruiters, I mean crusaders of Notre Dame Green Pond, grounded the Bombers 48-7. Last week, where was the defense? Palmerton fell to Northwestern Lehigh 57-28. This will be a curious matchup for Salkin. The Panthers are coming off a hard-fought, a great 34-33 win over Southern Lehigh and a Salkin Creek Classic. The Palmerton offense seems to be built around sophomore quarterback Cole Searfoss, number 7. They are a spread gun, primarily zone read team. The six foot three inch Searfoss is a talented dual threat type of guy. Palmerton has a solid stable of receivers, but Searfoss, however, has proven to be much more of a run threat so far this season. He carried 24 times for an eye catching 227 yards against the Rough Riders of Catasauqua in their opener. Searfoss followed that up by rushing for another 77 yards against Notre Dame Green Pond. 
Then last week, he ran for 169 yards on 26 carries. Even though running back number 30 Lucas Height rushed for 92 yards on only nine carries against the Northwestern Lehigh Tigers, it seems the key to stopping Palmerton's potent productivity is going to be keeping Searfoss under wraps. Even though Searfoss completed only three passes on 15 attempts against the Tigers, he does have a core of receivers who can inflict damage and make a defense pay. The receivers are led by Ethan Recker, number eight, and James Danicola, number 10. They're not very big at about 5'8", but it is their speed that is of concern to the Panther defensive backs. A pass completion in space will go a long way for the Bombers. Palmerton starts four seniors and a junior up front on their offensive line. They're not very big, averaging about six foot, 200 pounds, but they show some athleticism. Palmerton is well coached and always play with a lot of passion and determination. Ty squared, Ty Fizzamer and Ty Sensitz lead the Panthers in tackles, and they, along with the rest of the Panther pack, will have their work cut out for them containing Searfoss and the speed of the Bombers. The Panther offense is coming off a very explosive outing in last week's big win at Southern Lehigh. Junior quarterback Dante Mahaffey and classmate Ty Sensitz seemingly had their way against the Spartan defense. Mahaffey threw for 247 yards, while Sensitz caught seven of those passes for 143 yards in a TD. Mahaffey also found six-foot-three sophomore Alex Magnata three times for 56 yards in the game-winning touchdown. Mahaffey so far is 22 of 41 for 398 yards and two TDs. With 166 yards rushing, he averages 5.2 yards per carry with two touchdowns on the ground. As thrilled as Coach Trembler was for the big playability of his Panther offense, he's a little uncomfortable with the number of third and fourth down conversions that were needed throughout the night. Coach Trembler was saying that we don't want to make a living with frequent third and fourth and longs. Maybe a consistent running game will help the Panthers stay on track and grind out some first downs. Sophomore Josh Torres, number 22, is much improved and proved that he is legit. Torres ran with a purpose, gaining 94 yards on 12 carries and a couple of TDs. Torres has a lethal blend of speed, power, and quickness. He is a very good running back and at his best when running with an attitude. Shout out to the overall inexperienced Panther offensive line who opened holes for Torres and kept Mahaffey out of the hospital against Southern Lehigh. Owen Frederick, Jack Marushak, David Osman, Ty Fizemer, and Christian Schunk are the hogs up front. Osman, a senior, is a returning four-year starter, while the others are first-year starters on the O-line. Frederick and Fizzy are sophomores. Shunk and Maruchak are juniors. Again, a very interesting homecoming matchup is brewing here. Palmerton had their way with Caddy, but suffered a couple of lopsided defeats to a couple of Colonial League alphas in Notre Dame and Northwestern. The Panthers stumbled out of the gates in a loss to Bangor after two weeks of being cold turkey due to a corona quarantine. Salkin looked much better and confident in their Salkin Creek battle against Southern Lehigh. If Salkin Valley wants to keep momentum building and climb up the standings for mediocrity, they will need to play well against the Bombers. Good luck, Panthers. The source is with you. Here at Salkin Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. 
These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. Welcome to a special Halloween season interview here on No Rain Date. It's my pleasure to have as a guest an amateur historian of local haunted places, Ellen Flynn. Welcome. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for having me. Ellen and I have actually known each other for years. We once worked for the same business doing a similar thing, copywriting. And coincidentally, we both ended up living in Fountain Hill, Mm -hmm. too. So we have a lot in common. But I didn't even know that you were a haunted history buff until you reached out to me the other day. And I was delighted to hear that, of course, because I am, too. But you've done a lot of research over the years into local places mm-hmm. that are reputedly haunted. Right. And we're going to talk to you about some of them in a moment. First, I, I just kind of wanted to talk to you about your interest in haunted history and, you know, what kinds of stories do you, did you grow up hearing and, you know, how did that influence your interest today? Mm-hmm. I grew up, uh, my parents were not believers at all, so I didn't hear uh, anything really growing up, but I think I was really influenced by what I watched on TV. I always loved spooky, weird, scary things. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably started watching them far too young. <laughs> like The um, Twilight Zone? or Loved The Twilight Zone, and I remember watching that when I was probably six, seven, eight years old, you know. I'd be up late at night, my parents would be playing cards with their friends, and I'd be in the other room, and I could watch whatever I wanted. Nobody was monitoring me, and, you know, it was always the Twilight Zone and all the the weirdest stuff that I could find, you know, and I just always was drawn to that. But we never talked about it in my family. My parents did not enjoy that kind of thing at all. So I think that's where, where it all began, and I would just, I would read stories. I worked in a library, so I would take books Mm. out about it and, you know, just whatever I could get my hands on. I I can relate. I was like that too. And Mm -hmm. and my parents would know I was watching it and they'd be like, turn that off. You're going to have nightmares. (laughs) No, no, I'm not going to have nightmares. And then you had nightmares. (laughs) Yeah, in the (laughs) middle of the night. Every time. Every time. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But you just, you can't, if you're drawn to it, you can't not watch it. Right, right. And, um, and it, I'm also interested in a lot of the local unsolved, you know, murders and, mm. you know, or unexplained disappearances. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll run stories about cold cases. Yes. Um, yeah, I know. Which is that. sort of, yeah, yeah you hope that, that something will come out in right. those. But these cases that you're going to talk about are basically all really old. So, mm-hmm. pretty old, um, yeah. Anybody that was directly involved with them is long gone. Yes, <laughs> and for um, sure. one of them is very close to where we live today, mm-hmm. just up the hill. Essentially, it's the the Devil and Tambor Yokel. So Correct. this this took place in the eighteen hundreds, late seventeen hundreds, right after the Revolutionary War ended. Wow. Is when this one took place. Yeah. And this one has a very long oral history to it. This this story has been around for a long, long time. So if you'd like, I can just get right into the story. Yeah, and we can yeah. kind of talk about and, it and after. Us. <clears throat> so right after the Revolutionary War, the soldiers were all coming back. And there was one in particular, not his real name, Tambor Yokel. Tambor Yokel was a name given to him in a poem in the 1800s, later talking about this incident. Uh, but we'll just call him Tambor Yokel for now. Nobody really knows his real name, who it really was. But what happened was, uh, before the war, he sort of got into an, an argument or something with, uh, with another local man named John. And again, his name is lost to time as well. John beat the living daylights out of Tambor Yokel. Uh, t- uh, allegedly, and there's different versions of this story, but... Tambor Yokel allegedly insulted John's wife. Hmm. So John gave him a beating. And Tambor was so humiliated, he ran off 
and join the, the war. But he promised revenge on, on John. He, he promised he was going to give him a beating in return. Okay, he owed him one. So he's, he's at war, and he's, he's a drummer in, in the war. Mm-hmm. The legend has it that he was so afraid of dying that he sold his soul to the devil in return for surviving the war. Okay. Mm. So he survives the war, and he comes back. And there was a local tavern... Not sure where where it was, but it was local. He comes back and he still has his military uniform on. It's it's muddy. It's kind of getting worn. He has his drum around his neck, and he comes to the tavern and he's already a kind of three sheets to the wind when he gets there, and he starts tra- talking trash about this guy John. Where is he? Where's John? You know, I owe him a beating and I'm gonna deliver it. You know. And, and everyone's trying to, shh, oh, Tambor, you know. Right, yeah. right. And, and Tambor Yoko was not well-liked. He was kind of a jerk, so he was not well-liked. Right. And people are trying to shush him, you know, hey, you know, stop that. And he's railing on and on about this guy, John. Send him out. I'm going to beat him. And, and finally, the bartender says to him, listen, have some respect. John was killed in the war. He's buried up there in the cemetery. And so... Tambri Yokel says, well, I still owe him a beating, so I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to raise him from the dead, and I'm going to give him the beating that I owe him. <laughs> so <laughs> he starts... He's a stubborn he's fellow. He's pretty stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He starts marching up to the graveyard, and of course, everyone in the tavern follows, because they're like, oh, we got to see this. What is going to happen here? So they follow him. <laughs> And he's got his lantern in one hand, drumsticks in the other. He gets up to the cemetery, and at the time, it was surrounded by a stone wall. If you go up there now, this is at the Jerusalem Lutheran Church. Which uh, is on Church Road. Church Road in Sa- of Salisbury. Avenue. Right, correct. Yes. There's a wooden fence around it now, but at the time, there was a stone wall around it. So he uh, jumps up on top of the stone wall, puts his lantern down, and he starts beating his drum. And he starts yelling for John, you know, to come out, don't be a coward, you know. And he's making quite a ruckus there. And everyone is gathered around on the outside of the wall waiting to see what's going to happen. Well, Tambriokel, being three sheets to the wind, loses his balance. And he falls over the wall into the cemetery. And uh, they hear this, these blood-curdling screams going on. And they hear this commotion and he's screaming for help and he's screaming in terror and agony and and then the screams start getting quieter and lesser and lesser until there's just quiet they hear nothing well they were not about to go in <laughs> to right. find out what happened they scattered they scattered and they all came back the next morning when it was light and then they went in and there are two versions as to what they found the one version says that, well, they found the ground all torn up. There was quite a battle that went on there. They found hoof prints in the ground. And the one version says they found Tambriokel's body ripped to shreds, naked body, his clothes were shredded, his body was just ripped apart. And the other version says that they didn't find his body at all. They found a ton of blood, obviously so much blood no one could have survived it they found his clothes shredded hanging from trees and all over the cemetery but no body so they they said that the the devil came back to claim tambriokel that's that's a fascinating story and it sort of has i guess moral moral tones undertones you know so many of these stories have a moral to them right. you know they're it's almost like a cautionary tale yes you know don't sell your soul to the devil <laughs> don't go in cemeteries late at night you know uh, drinking bag. you know <laughs> the whole the whole gamut but it's interesting because um this story does seem to be something happened right there we're we're not sure it's kind of lost to time right now but something happened because it has a very long oral history it's actually become part of the church's history too interestingly 
And for years, folks would go miles out of their way to avoid passing by that cemetery at night. It's very dark on yeah. that road. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> But, you know, for years, people would go out of their way to avoid passing by. The church that's there now, that was started as a log structure in 1759. And by the late 1700s, it had become dilapidated. And then from 1791 to 1843 there was no church on that property at all hmm. you know and and it's kind of weird like why would there not be a right. church There's there for 50 years there should be a church there. exactly you know and so and this um, would have been like in the 1780s that's when yes. the revolutionary war ended yeah so. about i think 1783 it ended. yeah yeah so so yeah and how did you first learn of that tale like uh, you know, I, I don't recall now. It may have been in a book about local ghosts and local lore. Huh. Um, I had never heard of that. Yeah. And, and I grew up in the area, yeah. so I, yeah. I don't know how well known that one is. But um, It's pretty well known. Um, in 1888, there was a poem written by Reverend Dr. Joseph Henry Dubbs, and he was a history professor locally in the 1800s, and he wrote he wrote a poem about it. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's been a long, long tradition of people it was telling probably this told story. to children to keep them in line. Right. <laughs> or you'll end up As like many of these lo- stories. Yokel. Yep. So, it, and it, if you, the, the cemetery is very interesting, very old. Yeah. Uh, the original part of it, there's pre-revolutionary war stones there. And, hmm. and um, you know, you can go visit and walk around. I love walking through cemeteries, especially at this time of year, because, you know, with the leaves, it's usually beautiful, but um, I've never walked through that one. I mean, I like Niski Hill, and certainly you'll see a lot of well-known names in that cemetery, Mm -hmm. but, you know, Easton Cemetery is Mm -hmm. beautiful, God's Acre in Bethlehem, that could be another another show, probably, (laughs) but, but yeah, that's... Just hearing you tell that, the hair on the back of my neck was standing <laughs> up a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna go east of rather west a little bit, not far from from that area though, to the infamous Constitution Drive, mm-hmm. which is also sort of along the border between Allentown and Salisbury Township. You know, I I know I grew up hearing oh Constitution Drive, you know, you know, scary, but I didn't really know why. You know, yeah. I was supposed to be scared of it, I guess, and and that's that's what you're gonna tell us. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So again, you know, legends and folklore about it. Uh, it's supposedly haunted, and the story goes. And there's no timeline with this story. I could not find out like when this happened, but um, mm-hmm. the story goes. So if you if you're on Constitution Drive, which is creepy in itself, even not knowing the story about it, it's a very desolate road. And if you're driving on it on one side, there's a very steep embankment that goes down, and then there's railroad tracks down there, and then there's the Lehigh River. So the story goes that there was a man walking his two dogs along the railroad tracks, and he got struck by a train and it severed his one leg. And he laid there for two days. His dogs never left his side, and he died after two days. And his dogs never left him, and the dogs died as well next Mm. to him. So the legend has it that you can still see this man walking his dogs, his ghost dogs, the ghost man walking his ghost dogs along the tracks. Uh, The dog's eyes glow red. They say that you can see their footprints if it snows. Hmm. You can see the footprints of two dogs, but one human footprint. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, and I would never go back there if it snowed because I'd get stuck and then oh, I'd yeah, be that road. having a panic go. attack. Yeah, It's a yeah. Rough, rough road. Very kind of. rough road. Very desolate. No lights if you go at night. No lights. And I know, you know, kids go there at night and I know my daughter was telling me that when she was in school her friends they used to drive up there and they would dare each other to get out of the car and see how long someone could stand outside the car in the dark and I think she said the longest they lasted was like 12 seconds it's Mm -hmm. just so dark and desolate and creepy and you put it the best way I've heard it it's it's not creepy in like um 
like a paranormal way, but in more of a deliverance type way. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the woods are very thick, so yeah. I guess you get the feeling of you know being watched. Mm-hmm. And and it's not the most welcoming when when you enter the road. The homes all have size of, uh, signs, no trespassing. Right. You know, private property, no trespassing. So it's not the most welcoming. And I think that's partly because over the years it has attracted a criminal element yes. because of its isolation. A lot of crime happens there. There have been rapes reported there, assaults, gunshots. There's one house, like, all by itself down that road. I don't know if you saw it when I you think went down I did, there. Yeah. yeah. All by itself. And, you know, that home had been broken into several times, that which is why he now has the gate up and yes, everything. Yes, had a gate. Yep. So there, it is a high crime area. And there's a lot of dumping as mm-hmm. well because it's so out of the way. Nobody's yeah. there. I saw I mean, sofa. Oh, God, or... yeah, I saw that too. There looked like a whole bedroom, a dresser, this right. sofa, you know, all, all that. Yeah. It looked fresh, like it hadn't been Oh, there it was long. fresh, yep, yep. And there are signs also saying no dumping, right. that, that it's monitored. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the authorities are aware of, of the issues, but it's probably, you know, <laughs> there's, there's not enough manpower to to enforce something like that you can't patrol that all the time yeah Yeah. if i was a cop i wouldn't want to be patrolling back there at night either either. (laughs) and if you're driving on it you know at night you have to be careful there's no lights and that embankment is very steep right you know one false move you're rolling down that embankment so you hear the um there's a, a freight yard i think on the other side of the river there so like when I was driving, you hear this like clanking kind yes. of like almost like chains. Yes, like, and, I heard and that that's too. That's sort of an ominous sound. Yes, it just added to the creepiness. It just, it, it just of the adds area. to the creep factor there, definitely. Yeah, but that's I mean compared to some of these places, you know, it's relatively accessible. Like if you would mm-hmm. want to like check it out, just you know, be you know be cautious and be respectful of people's private property and obviously no dumping no littering like we should all be conscientious and keeping our our haunted places clean (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) now we're going to move east to the eastern area Mm -hmm. and this is one of the older stories but it's also pretty well documented historically, oh. and you were talking about how you how you researched this using newspapers mm-hmm. from the, the 1830s. Actual, yeah, the actual newspaper articles. This took place in uh, 1833, and so I, I compiled this story using the actual stories from the time. And this was one I had never heard of. But it's Getter's Island, and so, and I've passed this thousands of times. I never knew. I always saw it off of the bridge. If you're crossing the, the bridge, the um, free bridge, not the free bridge, but the the toll bridge okay. from Easton into from Phillipsburg into yes. Easton. Okay, yes. and you look over to the right. You're looking you'll... to the north. Right. Oh, I think. Josh, I'm not good with directions. I don't know if it's north. <laughs> well, if you're if you're going into Easton, you're, you're looking going, to the right. Correct. Then it would be the north. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I will take your word for it. <laughs> I'm directionally challenged, but yeah, and and you'll see it. It's an island there in, yes. in the in the river, and you know, I I always noticed it, but I I always wondered, like, oh, I wonder what that is, you know, mm-hmm. and so I found out about it by researching this story. In 1833, there was a man in Easton named Charles Getter, and there was a woman named Rebecca Lowell, and she accused Charles Getter of making her pregnant. So she brought him in front of the the judge. Okay, back in the day, a woman could bring a man in front of the judge and say, I am with child, he is the father. And the judge could make the man marry the woman, or he could go to prison. Right. Okay. So it's sort of like a a revert, a power play for a woman at that Uh, time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So she named Charles Getter as the father, and the judge said, "Well, you know, you can marry her or go to prison." And he really didn't want to marry her. (laughs) He was already in love with someone else named Mary Hummer. Her name was apparently she was his fiance, Mary. Mm -hmm. But he also didn't want to go to prison, so so he married Rebecca. 
and I think like the next day he was asking the justice of the peace how do I get a divorce <laughs> and the I justice of the part. peace was like yeah you don't like you're married now and just man up you know um but uh <laughs> but he was telling people please don't tell my fiance Mary she doesn't know yet the guy's married you know right. uh don't tell my fiance Mary I want to be the one that tells her you know and he then, was in a whole big mess. Uh, he was in a big <laughs> mess. He was. So he began telling people, he would go to the tavern, you know, and he'd start telling people like, oh, you know, in three weeks, I'll be rid of her. I won't have a wife in three weeks. Oh, in one week, I, I don't have to worry about it. I won't have a wife anymore in, in a week. Somebody was teasing him about his instant family, you know, going to be a father. And he said, no, nah, I'm not going to be a father. Don't worry about it. You know, so... There were all these people that heard him say all these things, you know, and, mm -hmm. and everyone knew he was extremely unhappy about the situation. Well, I think about 10 days after the wedding, Rebecca went missing and she was found uh, dead, strangled on the grounds of what is now Northampton Country Club. She was strangled and uh, she actually is supposed to haunt the grounds of the country club. Hmm. There have been reports of seeing a woman walking around there in a long black dress and bonnet, but everyone just assumed Charles Getter did it because of all the things he had been saying, how unhappy he was about the whole situation. He denied it, denied it. He was arrested. They had a trial. It took the jury 10 minutes to find him guilty, and he was sentenced to hang. Okay. It was a huge case. Everybody was following it, the, the case in the papers, and, you know, it was a pretty big deal for the time. Now, at the time, all the executions were, the hangings were in Center Square in Easton, mm. but this was such a big deal. They knew, like, so many people were going to come out to, to witness this hanging. You know, no TV, no Netflix. This was what people did back right. then. So they were trying to figure out a place where they could accommodate all these people, and they decided on that island in the in the river because people could line the banks of both sides and there was plenty of room there. Right. So that's what they decided to do. They built a scaffolding on it. They went all out. Basically, oh, they went on. They spared no expense, Josh. They they built the scaffolding day of the execution. That was in October. Of they don't mess around. He was found guilty in September. And the execution was the next month. Right. It was like in, no appeals. Like, oh, or no. Like no that. appeals. None of that. <laughs> he did actually end up confessing to the crime. He, he did end up confessing. But so he goes, you know, to the execution and um, they put him up there. They put the black hood over him. They put the rope around his neck. And he had requested instead of, you know, how... They usually drop through the floor. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, he didn't want that. He requested there was another way. I think it was a fairly new way using weights. Mm -hmm. And they would cut the weight, and then he would be hoisted up by his neck with the rope around his neck. And that's the way he wanted it. So that's what they did. Fifteen to 20,000 people were estimated mm. there to be watching. They cut the weight. He gets hoisted up, and the rope breaks. He falls to the ground, and he is quoted as saying, that was good for nothing. <laughs> so he, um, they have to go get a new rope. So they, he's waiting there 20 minutes, complaining that he hurt his arm when he fell and this and that, you know, 20 minutes to go get the new rope, come back, you know, do everything, set it all up and everything. He goes back on the scaffolding. They, they cut the weight. He gets hanged. I think it takes seven to ten minutes for him to, wow. to finally die. And then the behavior of the viewers of this execution was so awful. Drunkenness, you know. Debauchery. Debauchery. Yeah. Just, you know, very, very bad behavior. Laughing. You know, it appalled a lot of people. And they, they implored the governor to do away with public executions. And so that, and the governor agreed. And huh. that was the last public execution in the state. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that. So, and interestingly, a portion of one of the ropes is still at the Northampton County Historical Society from that hanging. 
but it is considered one, uh, one of the most haunted places in Easton. They they call it Getter's Island now, right. and apparently the ghost of Charles Getter roams the island to this day. Right. So, yeah. So no picnics on no. that island. Uh, well, interestingly, that that island was for sale a couple years ago. Oh, that's right. Um, nice. Twenty eighteen, I think it went up for sale. It was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But you can't build on it. I don't know. That's. I, I thought yeah. I remembered reading that because I mean it's it floods. So. Oh right, that would make I mean, sense. <laughs> yeah, it's it, six acres. I was is it really, that big? Really surprised wow. at how big it is. I didn't think it was that big. Yep. I also looked up Rebecca Lowell uh-huh. on Find a Grave, which is a good website for oh, researching yes. historical data. <laughs> And there is an entry for her as Rebecca Getter. Yes. And according to that, she's buried in the Dryland Cemetery in Hecktown. Although there isn't an, an actual grave marker for her, her name is listed on a wall with many names that I think are, are people that were buried a long time ago and maybe okay. their, their grave markers were lost, oh, something right. like that. But they do share some of the story in the entry on Find a Grave. So, oh, interesting. Um, but there was no grave uh, found for Charles Getter. So hmm. he may have been buried in a, uh, you know, prison graveyard. Uh, or... I think his friends took him oh, somewhere okay. to, to bury him. I don't really know. I, that's what I read in one of the articles. Right. Uh, but it doesn't say where. I know a lot of times you couldn't be buried in hallowed ground then if you were a convicted murderer. Hmm. So. Yeah true but that's yeah that's that's historically a very interesting mm-hmm. um, haunting yeah now we're gonna move a little bit back towards hellertown this is a, a place that many hellertown residents are familiar with Hexenkopf rock <laughs> which is in williams township mm-hmm. and it's it's a natural landmark mm-hmm. but it's also associated with witchcraft yes for many years since the at least the 18th century mm-hmm. so Ellen's going to tell us a little bit more right. about that and Hexenkopf actually means witch's head right right because the profile resembles a witch I, I didn't that's... see that when I yeah drove past and, it, and it but... may have eroded over time yes you know but maybe at some time it looked like the profile of a witch but it may have changed over time but yeah, in I mean, it, the land obviously goes back a long, long time with Native Americans there. And then in the 1700s, when the German settlers came, they there was something, because doctors were few and far between, so if you needed a doctor, you maybe had to travel a long way or wait a long time. So the Pennsylvania Dutch had what they called powwowers, which were like folk healers. And they used a lot of roots and herbs for their healing. And they also used incantations, chanting. The one I found was like, sty, sty, leave my eye, catch the one passing by. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what they would have to do is take whatever the disease was out of your body, but then they would have to put it somewhere. It was like a transference of it. They believed a lot of ailments were due to an evil in the body. So if you remove that evil, you'll remove the ailment. Okay, hmm. but it had to be transferred into something, and they used the rock to put that evil in. They would right. take it out of the person and put it into the rock. Okay, so of course people associate that rock with having evil in it. Okay, and it didn't help that it had glowed in the moonlight <laughs> because it had like mica in it. Right. Um, that that would they're you know they they glow they they reflect they shine, but it is very much associated with witches. Some people had said they had seen uh, witches dancing and singing up there. You know, men men would say that their wives would would leave at night and and go up there practice witchcraft. There were also reports of uh, ghostly horsemen seen riding around there. In the late 1700s, there was a man who lived near the rock, and he would go riding on horseback and warn all the residents that the tax assessors would were on their way. Hmm. You know, hide all the good stuff. The tax <laughs> tax assessors are coming. You know, they think maybe that's who that that horseman might be. There's also been reports of a headless man walking a headless black dog. Don't huh. know any backstory uh, as far as that, but. 
There seems to be problems with phones and GPS in that area. Phones don't work properly. GPS doesn't seem to work properly. Can't really seem to build anything. There was a story about someone trying to build a home nearby there and it burned down a couple of times. Hmm. Um, Workers in the 1920s trying to put telegraph poles up there uh, and they had to dig into the ground to put the poles in. Poles kept falling over and uh, the report is that it killed one of the workers, Hmm. knocked him into a ditch and he died. Yeah, there's a lot of of stories up there. Have you been there? I've I've never been on the rock. I've mm-hmm. been past it, and it's it's much easier to see it in the winter time because mm. of the trees. It's right. a pretty wooded area, so I mean, this time of year, the the leaves are falling. You probably can see it somewhat mm-hmm. from the road. It is on private property, and okay. the man who owns it is a former Lehigh professor, Ned Heindel, who is also knowledgeable about the history, especially of the powwowers which are sometimes called witch doctors he's even written a book about that subject yes i in one of the articles i read i had seen his picture and and saw that he wrote a book about it right the the hexerai hexerai Mm -hmm. are are like the spells that they would cast a few years ago he gave a talk to the lower Saucon township historical society which was very interesting and, and he delved into some of these subjects which fascinated me i think because you know what they were doing was sort of outside the mainstream mm-hmm. of judeo-christianity it sort of combines pagan mm-hmm. elements and um you know but but they were mainstream people basically right, right. Uh, went to church and everything and 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 just happened to do this sort of on the side right and um, it was a necessity because the the herbs and roots that they used you know, helped people. Right. Um, and like I had mentioned, the doctors were few and far between, you know, and if you couldn't get to a doctor, you were certainly going to go to somebody who you thought could help you. Yes. And and they were, you know, all over. They were in Hellertown. They were in, mm-hmm. you know, Berks County and, mm-hmm. and anywhere where the, the Germans had settled right. at that time. So, um, so that, you know, that, that sort of Hexenkopf rock is sort of imbued with that mm-hmm. that history i think and um i remember also i mean i don't somebody told me that when they were a kid or or maybe it was when their father was a, a child it was like a rite of passage in hellertown on halloween you had to like run from hellertown out to hexenkopf rock and then back <laughs> and and you know then you were like a man you know that wow. you, you know like this was something like a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old would, would do. And, yeah. and it's probably about five miles from here to there. And, you know, that would be kind of scary. Like, in yeah. the middle of the night back then, sure. this would have been, like, the 1930s, maybe. Like, no mm-hmm. lights, you know? Like, so, uh, you know, it was certainly common knowledge, you know, right. among oh, people here. definitely that, a common folklore. A lot of people know about it. Yeah. 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 And then the last one we're going to talk about is also a, a mountain, Hawk Mountain, which I think when people hear Hawk Mountain, the first thing they think of isn't hauntings normally. Right. Uh, it's a beautiful place to hike, yes. bird watch, and but you have a story that is blood curdling to say <laughs> the least. So let's hear it. Yeah. So well, on so there was this person. His name was Matthias Schambacher, or Schambach. There's a couple different versions of his name, but um, he was allegedly a serial killer that lived on the grounds there. He, uh, in the 1800s, he ran the tavern and inn there, which is still there, by the way. You can mm-hmm. you can still see it there. And the story goes that travelers, especially salesmen, would be coming through and they would stay at his inn. And this Never. was just after the Civil War, uh, and there was a lot is... of people moving, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. That's about right, right after the Civil War. And so travelers would come through. They would stop at the inn, never to be seen again. <laughs> uh, a lot of them were salesmen, and then they would disappear, and Matthias would be seen selling their wares in town mysteriously, but they were nowhere, nowhere to be found. The tavern itself was built in 1793, and then on that land was the Gerhardt family. 
and the whole family was massacred by the Delaware tribe. Hmm. Uh, but there was one survivor, Jacob. He was a child. And when he, he actually came back on that land and built the tavern in 1793. I, I, I do not want to come part. back. Yeah, why that. would you come back years I, later? <laughs> yeah, with his family. He came back with his family, built the tavern on that land. Yep, yep. Probably a mistake yeah. <laughs> in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the 1800s, Matthias Schambacher took that over. And then that was the story. Um, and there were, I think, an estimated 14 people went missing that they can account for the story. And I think you read this, too, about the, the, the person that, that was having dinner. Schambacher served him sausage. Mm-hmm. And the guy noticed that there were no pigs or livestock Great. around. Which um, then you would have had to have if you were producing sausage. Exactly. So and he, he thought that a little, was a bit odd. Yes. A little bit odd. Kind of Sweeney Toddish, like with Mrs. Lovett's meat pies going on there. Yes. <laughs> so basically his, his MO was that he would get these guys drunk. Right. Being a, a tavern, it was easy mm-hmm. to do that. And then kill them. Yeah and steal it was it was a rob a murder robbery for profit and he threw their bodies down wells on the property yeah um that that's the story and then interestingly there were old records found in the tavern that said that the family that came in after him they were named the turners they found human remains in three of the wells on the property Hmm. yeah and allegedly uh, matthias did confess to to doing it allegedly he died at age 55 in 1879 after a mental breakdown and then there was a story about his burial when they were burying him lightning struck right and there's a couple different versions lightning that it struck, struck the, the coffin it struck the ground nearby but yeah that there was a lightning strike but he was never he was never uh, tried no. or anything i guess no. they didn't feel like they had the evidence um, yeah to do that since everything was sort of circumstantial right right and they didn't maybe they didn't have the bodies at that point either they they were just had disappeared but at that time like i said people were transient because of the civil war having ended and they didn't they couldn't prove that they hadn't just gone off somewhere else so Right. right yeah so his matthias's spirit is seen roaming around there and then the spirits of the Gerhardt family who were massacred by the Delaware tribe, they're seen. There's also spirit of a 10 foot tall Native American that's seen. Mm. And that's described as people feeling pure evil when they see it and it's very threatening. Mm. It's thought to perhaps be guarding an ancient ceremonial circle of the Native Americans. So it's uh, very protective. A lot of mysterious lights are seen in the woods, phantom voices, things like that, people experience. Um, There's a spirit of a young girl that roams the tavern. She was the daughter of the Turners who bought the tavern after uh, Matthias passed away. She has been seen. She apparently died when she fell down the stairs Hmm. there. Uh, so people have seen her. So it's it's it is considered Hawk Mountain is considered one of the most haunted places in the United States. Wow, mm-hmm. I yep. had no idea. Yep. And and these are just a few of the places in this oh, area yeah. that we could talk about. I mean, there are many more. Many um, many more. And certainly there are places that I think that are haunted, you know, like, you know, I'm sure like buildings at like Lehigh University. And, yeah, Lehigh, um, I think in the library, there's supposed to be. Right, the old spirit, library. The old library, Moravian College. Yes. Uh, the, well, the Brethren's House was a hospital yes, during the Revolutionary, Revolutionary War, War, so hundreds of soldiers died mm-hmm. in that building. And right. uh, they're buried on the embankment on the other side of 378. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I certainly... I certainly think that that could be a very haunted place. Oh yeah, and um, sun I, in there. It goes yeah, on and the on. Sun There's in. so many. Right. So yeah, if you have a if you have a uh, haunted place that that you have experienced, you know, let us know. You can you can email me at josh at sockandsource.com and Ellen would love to hear from you too. She mm-hmm. has a Facebook group called Creepy LV. 
and if you want to join you're welcome to just be aware that it's not super active mm -hmm. but if she gets inspired by you maybe <laughs> she'll she'll uh, light it up a little bit <laughs> yeah we'll definitely share things that people people sent to me yeah yeah because we all want to want to learn from history and, and and this is educational because we're we're talking about the past and in the context of these hauntings so you can also find Ellen at the art establishment mm -hmm. in Fountain Hill, which she and her husband Tom own. It's a art studio that features classes and gallery space, mm -hmm. and it's open to the public. Yep, and community studio. Yes, I've taken classes there. It's a lot of fun. You can, you know, spin a potter's wheel and and you know express your creativity which i think is really important uh, for all of us especially mm -hmm. now oh especially now yes. yeah we had a community art walk in hellertown that was inspired by the pandemic yeah, and i, I thought that was that. a really cool idea yeah. to um encourage you know that kind of thing so you can find the art establishment online they have a website facebook instagram all that good stuff Thank you for joining us, Alan. Thank you for having me, Josh. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.